anticipation for this women's 200 metres final. Veronica Campbell-Brown alongside her. I just clear my mind and the only thing that I focus on in the start is just the sound of the gun. And then after reaction, everything just fall into place. After each win, I have to celebrate quickly and get back to work. There is no time. You have to keep evolving. You have to, it's almost like you have to get stronger. You have to become more determined. Smith in touch. I do think the best learn the faster than anybody else. Go, all the way through. When they see that there's an error, they may not have the answer or the solution, but they're gonna find out what the best answer is to attack that problem. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Paddy Steinfurt, your host, and we have a couple of fantastic guests on today's show. Very, very different journeys, but both have made it to the top of the world in their respective arenas. First up, Veronica Campbell-Brown, an eight-time Olympic medalist, and I'm really specific on this point here, the second woman in history, in the entire history of the human race, to win two <laughs> consecutive Olympic 200-meter events. Three Olympic golds, three world championship golds. Welcome to the show, Veronica. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. And we're lucky to be joined by, this is a really cool dynamic here because we're joined by your longtime coach, Eric Karem, who I met as a director of sports science and operations at FSU football, then went on to work with Houston Texans mm -hmm. in the NFL and now founder and CEO of AIM7, his own data analytics company. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. And you didn't have to mention as many Olympic medals either. <laughs> right. Well, I was I was saying before the show that I needed to make sure if anyone's watching the video right now, my eyes are not on the screen because I'm yeah. reading through the a list of accomplishments. That's She's quite accomplished. Hard to yeah. follow. <laughs> so, Veronica, don't be so good and make my job easier here. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a list of the post-game review, I guess, of, hey, here's, a, here's an Olympic career that went pretty well and we can look mm -hmm. back at it and there's all these things I get to read out. But part of what I love about this show and these conversations is we get to explore the fact that it wasn't always like that. And you came from Jamaica, an upbringing and a life that most of us can't imagine, to then end up being one of only two women in history to perform a, a certain achievement at the Olympic Games. And so really curious to go to rewind the tape somewhat and go back into your childhood, not in a Freudian way, but just be like, hey, tell us about what it was like growing up in Jamaica and how you ended up in sprinting is that just kind of what happens in Jamaica if you're kind of athletic you end up being a sprinter tell us about how it started for you yes definitely a lot of the athletes in Jamaica end up in sprints for me I was born in Trelawney Jamaica it is a rural area so I consider myself a country girl and I grew up in a family that was a huge family but growing up I did not have much I, I grew up with my mother my stepfather and um, several brothers and sisters I have five brothers, four sisters. And so I grew up in a large family and we did not have much, but my mother taught me the value of hard work and just being positive and staying focused. And so when I discovered my gift for running at a very young age, I realized that that was the opportunity for me to rise from my humble beginning and become something great out of life. And so I've always just had that in the back of my head. And so I've always worked hard at track and field to the point where 
everything I do always include running. So although I have a lot of brothers and sisters just to share the toss with, the toss with, my mother always made me the child of choice to be sent to the supermarket because in Jamaica, we don't <laughs> normally stop grocery. We buy like daily. And so how far, how far are we talking to the supermarket? How far is that? I want to say about five miles. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I would run. I was always fun. I would run on these dirt roads, beer feet, whether it is dry or wet. It was always fun. And I would run to get whatever my mom wanted to cook. And she normally start cooking and just send me to buy whatever she needs because she knows that I would get back in time. And so I would also... I love running so much that I was beating all the girls and I realized that wasn't enough. So I started to initiate race races with the boys, even older boys. And they would be quick to accept the challenge because they're like, okay, I'm going to beat her. She's just a girl and she's a younger girl. But to their surprise, I, I win most of those races. And so, <laughs> and so it become a community entertainment where people would come out <laughs> of the street just to watch me racing these boys on, on the street barefoot and it was funny because the street that we chose to race on was going downhill so you're adding that extra speed and you have to maintain your technique and know how to run down the hill when everything is fast and so so track and field is a blessing for me and I really embrace my talent and I realized that it doesn't matter where you come from it's about your hard work your determination and I really appreciate being from an humble beginning and born in Jamaica where we don't have like American football, we don't have great basketball teams and the main sport is track and field. And so I had no choice. If I wanted to get out of Jamaica, if I wanted to be appealing to the U.S. US schools to get a scholarship, I had to work extremely hard because it was very competitive. And everywhere you look, you could find a great sprint athlete. And so... I had to stay focused, stay on the course and know that I'm working hard because I wanted to get out of poverty. I wanted to make a life for myself so I can give back to my family. And mm-hmm. so it was just an absolute blessing. I can't stress it too much to discover that I had that talent and I had people around me who supported and pushed me to the right schools and helped me to just continue evolving and training hard. And I am where am I today just because of um, track and field. And I think that because I did not have much, my determination was always on a high. No matter how challenging it was, whether, whether I didn't have shoes, whether I didn't have food, I'm going to train in because I see it as an opportunity to get better. And I know that my situation would be temporary. And as long as I keep pushing through and keep working hard, then I know that I would be rewarded. Really, really cool story. Like I'm, I'm like, oh, I got eight questions lined up in my mm-hmm. head from that. But I want to pick up on something you mentioned there where you said, I know my situation is going to be temporary. One of the things that we do when work with Pro athletes a lot particularly and and also in the military is teaching about optimism where you can interpret a certain situation one way or the other. It's uncertain. We deal with what I call with the four uns. It's unclear, it's unknown, there's uncertainty or or potentially in your case, there's a little bit of being uncommon as well. Like These are all things that could go one way or the other depending on how you interpret them and you naturally have said, okay, there's a a boy there who wants to race me downhill and you could interpret that as I'm going to be embarrassed or I'm going to get beaten, or I've grown up in this situation, it's going to be tough. But it sounds like you naturally or reflexively interpreted everything as, oh, I'm going to move into that. I'm going to go towards that rather than run away from that. Is that something that you learned via your parents? Or do you feel like that was just who you were as a character? Or 
Like, tell us a little more about how do you get to the point where you look at an adversity or something that's a little bit uncertain and you're like, it won't always be like that. How did that, where did that come from? I think it's a combination of three things, I would say. I think I bond with a little bit of that. And then my parents, you know, determined they are and the environment that I was in. So all those things, I had no choice, but because I'm always have challenge that I have to fight. And so I embrace my challenges. When I have a difficult situation, I don't view it as a threat. I view it as a challenge, a way to improve, a way to get better, a way to prove to others or to prove to myself that I can do it. And so when it comes to raising boys, my objective was to beat them because I'm like, if I can beat these boys and I want to be a great track athlete, this is a way to help me develop and just help me to run with people who I believe would be faster than me. And it's going to challenge me hard enough to push because the objective is to win. I'm very competitive and I always want to win. And so because I was beating all the girls, I'm like, it wasn't enough. So I'm like, okay, in order for me to get to the next level, now I need to challenge the boys. And it was amazing. It was just fun for me to raise these boys and see the surprise in their face when they lost but they keep coming back because they're like okay that was a mistake (laughs) (laughs) and it just keep happening over and over but you know it is with the ego and with the community looking like okay veronica just be x and he's he feeling a little i'm disappointed and he want to prove himself so the next time we lined up and the the same things happen (laughs) but my mindset is always to win and i'm always very competitive and i really believe that i was born like that my parents helped me to be determined and, and always going after victory and even when i'm defeated in one race or in one situation that does not even change the way i look at it i keep going back to win. And I always find a reason to say, okay, that's why I lost. I always find a way to blame myself. And by blaming myself, I see, okay, that is what I did wrong. And because I did that wrong, then I can fix it. And um, those things help me to just stay motivated, regardless the results, if I get it or not, I just keep going back. Yeah. I mean, super interesting there that you said you tied the response to uncertainty of like choosing to think that it's not permanent to being competitive, which is I would do that, but only because I've seen a bunch of data that would suggest it. And also that you then move to saying that regardless of win or lose, that's how you were. A really super fascinating response that's that's not really taught, but it definitely reflects my experience, Eric, and I'm, and I'm interested to dig into yours. You, you've been with world-class athletes now for over 10 years. I know we met a long, long time ago in a galaxy mm-hmm. far, far away down in Tallahassee, Florida, but you've been across a bunch of both high-level collegiate athletes, high-level pro football players, and also Olympians, as in the case of Veronica and others. Does that vibe with your experience of like the best of the best or the people who can handle competition are the ones who are able to look at things innately and just say, hey, I'm going to attack this? Or is it something that you see, you actually see some people fall on their face and then get better at? I think it's a little bit of both. I don't think there's one right answer to that. I do think the best learn faster than anybody else. And so when they see that there's an error, they may not have the answer or the solution, but they're going to find out what the best answer is. And then they're going to pool all their resources and abilities to attack that problem. And so some people are very self-aware and they can just diagnose themselves. Some people need a coach, but you know, there's the naturals that just, you know, are self-taught and they can go out and do things and it just seems a little bit easier. I'm sure if you would ask them, they would tell you that's a little bit more difficult. But, you know, you see athletes across all different planes, you know, but the, the commonality is 
when they identify what the limiting factor is that they attack it with everything that they have. Yeah. And, and that was, that was the other interesting thing that I didn't mention there, Veronica, was that you said, I find a way to blame myself, mm-hmm. which is some might argue these days a little bit unusual, but integral to people being able to turn things that might become permanent to feeling like I have some power over this. Like if it's just because coach is an asshole and he won't put me in the lineup, then there's not much <laughs> I can do about that. And so I will give up. Right. But if you're able to actually say, what can I do about this? It gives yeah. you some feeling of power and a little more energy to attack some of the problems. Eric, you better add to that. Yeah. I was going to just kind of brag on Veronica for a second. <laughs> like I'm just thinking to myself, Veronica, we've known each other since 2005 I don't think in victory or defeat that she's ever blamed anybody else or really like even in winning, I never saw her gloat her win. It was like this humility about it. And now that I kind of think about that for a second, that is very uncommon. And she's always just been super classy and, you know, track and field. She could tell you it's a very difficult sport, especially when it comes to, you know, the financial components of it. There's a lot mm. on the line. It's not like you can make the practice squad in the NFL or you can make, just make the roster and you're living a pretty good life. I mean, the difference between first and sixth is like living in a good neighborhood and like maybe still living out of your car. And so there's a lot of competitiveness and other things that go with that. That, And I just never saw her do anything but shoulder the burden herself, even though the people that surrounded her would feel the the pain of loss or the joy of victory. It, it was never like, it's all about me. You know what I'm saying? And she's super self-aware in that sense. And, but also very like hyper competitive. <laughs> I mean, like, like I always say, she's like a lioness. As soon as she gets on the starting line, she's going to eat your heart out. Here we go. But then yeah, as like as it, soon as like it's it. over with, she'll give you a big hug. But man, I wouldn't want to be standing in her way. <laughs> it's a great visual there of the lioness on the starting line. The, the research that we've done on high level, like world-class performers actually reflects that, that the number one predictor of success, if you equalize for talent and age and everything else is how competitive someone is. And mm. so you describing that is really interesting that <laughs> it actually reflects someone who has one of the best records of all time in the Olympics. Yes is a lioness on the starting line. I really like that, uh, that mm. visual. Switching it up for a second, or actually I'm gonna grab what you just said there, Eric. You mentioned two things, one being you know, shouldering the burden is the, mm. is the visual that, that you threw out there, and also the lioness at the starting line. Those are a couple of things that form part of some people's definition of toughness. And we ask everyone who comes on the show, like in your arena, so in what you've seen in the sporting arena, both at the collegiate level, at Olympics, at professional football level. Is that a part of toughness? Is that for you like that's what it is? Just be, just look after your own shit? Or like how would you define toughness based on some of the world-class performers you've seen? Yeah, I think toughness is task-specific. So I believe that like, you know, when people, especially I've been in like environments where you're identifying or evaluating talent, you want to yep. look for people that are generally optimistic. Okay, that's part of the equation. But you can't be tough to everything. That's impossible. Like you can't just be tough to every situation in the world. So for instance, I could take Veronica who on the track 
in her area of expertise is like, yeah, I'm going to own you. But if I took her and like put her with some of our folks in the military and threw some camo on her and said, all right, jump out of a helicopter or go jump out of an airplane at, you know, it just, she's never jumped out of an airplane. She would have a very high stress response and she'd probably be like, no, uh -uh, I ain't doing this unless she was trained. Would you jump out of an airplane for the sake of this show? If we organize that? Mm, I've never tried it. I'm not so (laughs) fond of I, but you never know. It could be fun. (laughs) (laughs) all right i'll come back to it anyway sorry i keep going but my my point is is like you would see a stress response you would Mm -hmm. see like all the typical things but if you trained her if you took her to fort benning georgia and like put her Mm -hmm. through like jump school she would develop the skill set and she could be tough in that scenario and so for me like it's task specific and we have different bandwidths for different areas and then the more you scale your experience you can become more tough and more tough and more tough, but that's just the way I view things. And so when you're describing that, you're talking about the ability to either control or have a reduced physiological response to a noxious stimuli. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, and that you can access more of your memory. You can see the field better. You can chunk cues. So I've seen quarterbacks in college, okay, really, really good, go to an NFL tryout, and it was like they couldn't throw a ball. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what just happened there? And then after a few days, the pressure starts going down and then they get more comfortable and then they're, you know, doing the thing. But as you know, like when you're under stress, especially if it's a new stress, like you're, you know, see a little, see a lot, see a lot, see nothing. You start paying. It's like your attention is all over the place and you, and you have to be able to harness that. So I've just seen that it's task specific. And as you scale it over time and it's, you know, stress inoculation, that you can become more tough. And I say that because nobody could have prepared us for COVID, like an entire mm. country. And so like people are maybe sitting out there like, why am I feeling this way? Well, we're in a global pandemic. It's not like there's a training manual for a global pandemic. Maybe there will be after this, but they can develop that over time. And right. so I just think it's, I've seen it with athletes too, that they start on this stage, they develop, toughness and they go to the next level and they develop more and then more and more and more. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I want to, while we're on the topic of toughness and defining it, now going to someone who is a lioness at the starting line and has eaten (laughs) other competitors for breakfast, lunch (laughs) and dinner, how would you define toughness, Veronica, in in your world, in your arena? And it doesn't necessarily have to be limited to your destroying other humans on the track, like (laughs) growing up in poverty in Jamaica, how, like, does that shape your definition of toughness? Yeah, I would say I really like your definition of being task specific. That's new to me. And I really, I really like, like that concept. Because I didn't look at it that way. For me, I just see toughness as having that determination, having like a tunnel vision on your goal. And don't matter what obstacle you face, don't matter the setbacks, nothing change. And you just, don't matter how many times you're not done, you pick yourself up and you brush yourself off and you just keep working towards your goal. So for me, that is, that is just having that mental resilience to never give up no matter what and just keep your sight set on your goal and be consistent even when things are difficult. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. 
coming up later in the show. That was the first time I realized that no matter what challenges you get to face, as long as you stick with it, you will be a better person through it. So damn proud. You mentioned there the, the steady vision on your goal. No matter how difficult things are, no matter whether you fall over, the resilience to keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Can you describe when was the first time you recognized that in yourself? Where like it sounds like you were just like, hey, this is a girl who can beat all the guys on the block, and so let's take her to nationals in, in Jamaica, and then she can beat all the girls in Jamaica, so let's take her to the Olympics. Like it sounds like a pretty smooth run, right? But I'm assuming that there were some hiccups and pitfalls along the way. It, when did you first recognize that? So when did you have to draw on that? Right. My first year at, in high school, very technical high school, very technical high school is one of the most accomplished high school in Jamaica. Um, it has produced most Olympians in Jamaica's track and field history. And I was advised to attend Vera Technical High School because of the history and the quality training that I would get to continue to improve my speed and technique. And so I got to Vera Technical High School dominating in my parish in Trelawney. And when I, when, I, when I got there, I was not fit enough for the sprint team. So that was the first wake-up call, like, okay, you're beating all the boys in Trelawney, but now this is a new level. And I was forced to run the 400 meters. I did not know anything about the 400 <laughs> meters, never trained for it before. I never run it before. But here I was. I had no choice. I love track and field. I want to stay on the team. And so I had to train for the 400 meters for one season. And I'm telling you, those training sessions were extreme. I had to finish all my workouts. There are days when I have to go on a 30 minutes run. And then I come back for the track workouts. And all these were, were new to me. But I had to develop resilience and toughness and just stay working, staying hard because I wanted to get back to the sprints. And I really believe that I was a sprinter. But for one season, I was a 400-meter runner. And although I ran at the high school championship, I did not do well. But I stayed in it and I keep working hard. And I eventually, I regained my position in the sprint one season later. And that very, very season, I won my, my first global title, 100 meter at the World Youth Championships. And so if I'd given up, because if I wanted, I could have quit. I could have just stopped doing track and field because I wasn't doing what I want. But I stayed with it. I stayed focused on my goal. And I know that I would regain a position in the sprints. And when I got back to the sprints, I felt like a stronger, better person because the training wasn't as hard. The train, the sprint training was actually easy based on what I was doing for the 400 meter um, training. So I think that was the first time I realized that no matter what challenges you get to face, as long as you stick with it, you will be a better person through it. So that little lesson taught me to not be afraid of challenges. And so when I start running in the Olympics. And it was like, uh, after I finished competing for Vietnam High School and competing at those championships in Jamaica, the Olympic stage, although it was a bigger global stage, it feels like I've been there before because it's, it's always a fight to make sure that I, that I make the team, to make sure that I win and get the points that are required of me. And so I think my high school, really, Vietnam High School, they really taught me what it means to just Stay determined, keep persevering, and no matter what, what I have to do, I can get it done. Yeah, that's a it's a common refrain from people who we have on the show and people who aren't on the show but are world class performers, talking about 
a little moment in time where they had a, a group or a community around them that actually shifted either mm. their definition of toughness or what they, you know, I think Lindsay Vaughn referred to it as levels of toughness where she would say, I thought I was training hard and then I went to this thing and I was like, holy shit. And then she <laughs> leveled up and she leveled up and she leveled up and eventually becomes one of the best in the world. But yeah. the power of community to help yeah. toughen people up by not necessarily beating up on them, but by showing them like, hey, here's a different way to do this. Or you, yeah. if you want to go further, you have to do it this way. And Eric, that kind of is part of your job description, right? When you're uh, in charge of FSU and when you're at the Houston Texans, your job is effectively to take young men in this instance mm-hmm. into an environment where they've been rated, like if they're ending up at FSU, they're, they're one of the best in the country. If they're ending yeah. up at the Houston Texans, by definition, they're one of the best in the world. And yet your job is to both physically and in, in many cases mentally say, hey, well done on getting here, but that ain't it. Like we need to level that up. Can you describe how you learned to do that? Like was that what you set out to do at the start of your career or you just wanted to help people get physically strong? Yeah, I thought I was going to be just a strength coach. Nothing wrong with that, but that was kind of the path <laughs> I was on. And then actually it was through being with Veronica and her husband Omar and getting to travel and see how things were getting done in different parts of the world, I started seeing that there was this thing called high performance and that there was a more global approach to athlete development. And one of the things I really loved about track was that everything was streamlined. You know, it was like coach, athlete, therapist, strength coach in our situation. So there was not a lot of like, everything was kind of coordinated really, really well. And so that's really what I wanted to do was to be really in charge of athlete development. And when I was at between FSU and the Texans, I was the high performance director at University of Kentucky. And we had some just, it was really hard. We were really bad when we got there, like really, really bad. But we had a few studs, a couple first round draft picks. One guy in particular, his name is uh, Zadarius Smith. He just signed a massive contract with the Green Bay Packers. Great guy, crushed it in junior college, comes into Kentucky. He's got a great heart, but like he just didn't know what that step needed to be to be a dominant SEC player. And his first year, he struggled. And you can only do so much. You can tell them what's going to happen. You can give them the tools, but they sometimes have to learn for themselves. And after that season, he was like, I didn't perform up to my standard. I see what you're talking about now, coach. And then it was like he was all in. He had the skill, the ability. And then he just like, once they accepted that this is what it's going to take, then his career took off. You know what I'm saying? So that's the, my, my favorite part about the whole thing is like the discovery process of what it takes to be elite. And one thing I've had to learn is for some people, it takes a little bit longer. And that's the frustration in college was is like, you see a freshman and you're like, you should be doing this, 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 and this. And you just can't expect for it to click overnight. It's going to take two or three years for some of these guys. One of our, I love this guy's name is Jojo Kemp. He was a big knucklehead his freshman, sophomore year or freshman <laughs> year. And, you know, just jovial personality, but just anyways. And he had to kind of had this moment where like, it really clicked for him. Like, this is what it means to be a great teammate. And the next, so his freshman year, you know, he's one of the starting running backs in the rotation, but he's just not, it's just not happening. That off season, it clicks. Okay. The next year we beat South Carolina, broke a losing streak. I think we won in triple overtime and he literally carried the team. Like 
they handed the ball off to him every single play. And it was like, because he figured it out the year before, like he was then counted on and he carried the team to a huge win. And so like, those are the moments that it's just so amazing to watch Veronica. I was just kind of lucky to just hang around. Cause like she, <laughs> she was just like, she would hold you. You know what I'm saying? It was like, Eric, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. And then I felt like I better show up and bring whatever I can to the table to make sure it's there. But I hope I answered your question well enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're, I mean, you, one of the words that stood out to me was acceptance, mm-hmm. where it's partly a young athletic prodigy's ability to accept like, okay, what got me here isn't going to get me there or mm-hmm. this is what's expected of me here in this environment. Mm-hmm. But even you mentioned it yourself, Eric, in your journey as a practitioner, like you had to accept that, okay, working with Veronica is a different level. And, and if yeah. I want to be doing this, then I here are my new standards. And I, I'm just like one of the athletes. You know, I had to recalibrate my view, not just with Veronica, but with like college athletes for a versus a, like college, I had to learn how to get more patient. I had to learn to be more patient and nurturing and like, yes, this is where you need to be, but like, it's on me to figure out how to get you there. Now in the NFL, you are paid to do a job. And so there's a little bit less like bandwidth. You know, my thing was like, how can I solve a problem for you? How can I be in service to you? It was a little bit of a mindset flip. And I enjoyed that too, because like, mm. these are grown men. They're, they're providing for their families. They understand the consequences of winning and losing. And so if I can just present myself in a way to be a service to them, that was the best way to create relationships and help them on their journey. Yeah. And I'm sure there was moments of that for you as well, Veronica. You mentioned one of going to high school and accepting, okay, I got to run 400. Like I hate it. That shit burns. Anyone who's ever run one 400, yeah, it's terrible. let alone <laughs> many of them, yeah. will appreciate that pain. But yeah. was that a, a skill that you picked up there? Or that was, you know, like you said, it was just, I, I'm going to the Olympics. And so whatever it takes. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's the school I wanted to be in. And that was what it takes to stay on the track team. And it's, it's almost like I had to earn my place, even though I came in as a sprinter. When I got there, well, I was not good enough. There were so many great athletes on the team and there's just a certain number of athletes who can run um, each event at the high school championship and so I wanted to stay on the team and so I had to accept my position which was a 400 meter runner at the time and I really gained a lot from it so when I look at it at the end it was it was good for me it helped me develop because maybe I was not ready maybe I was too young my first year to compete with the girls that has been there two and three years and so by me taking a step back and do something totally different when I got back to the sprints I was like a brand new person I was just excited and ready to go and I felt stronger and I felt better so I think it did work out in my favor. And so I learned to embrace whatever situation I find myself in and know that things will work out. And I always believe that something good, no matter how bad it is, something good, you can always find something good out of every situation. Yeah. I'd like to dig into that a little bit because you said a couple of things there that one of my other guests was a comedian and not was, still is a comedian on The Daily Show. He, he basically does public speaking, but he has to make people laugh at the same time. And that's the number one fear for the human race. So it's a different kind of toughness, but he has to get up there every night and make people laugh. And he described the conversation he had with his wife where, she, where he was getting trolled online or whatever. And, and she said to him, you know, just screw the haters, ignore the haters. And he was like, that's a fucking Instagram post. Like how 
do you do that? You can say it all you want, but the process of doing that is is something that like you have to actually learn to do that. And so you said, you know, something there about embracing it and some people might say embrace the suck or, you know, they're, they're good, there's good Instagram posts about that. But what was your process? Maybe if we fast forward a little to, okay, you've made the Olympics or you've won medal and you go on to win, as I said, started show a bunch of them. What was something that you had to evolve your thinking around in terms of embracing something that wasn't comfortable in order to not just make it? Because once you made it, you then stayed there for a long time as well. And that we have a lot of listeners who, whether they're in the military and they've made the ranks and they want to move up or whether they're an athlete or a business person, whatever they're trying to do, they might, have, they might have already made it to what their initial goal was. They've gone through that high school moment. For you, once you were at the top of the tree, what did you need to accept to stay there? I had to work harder because it once you get to the top, the pressure keep building for you to stay there. And so you have to keep evolving. You have to, it's almost like you have to get stronger. You have to become more determined. It seems that the more I achieve, the more I am forced to become more determined, to not become complacent. Because after winning my first Olympic medals, I was senior, I was a senior in college. And that year I won the indoors 200 meters at the SEC. And I, right after that, I forfeited the rest of my collegiate eligibility and I went pro. And the pressure continues because the next year in 2005, I lost the world championship. And so I had to dig deep and figure out what was the problem because I was expected to win and then I lost. And so I realized that I cannot become complacent After each win, I have to celebrate quickly and get back to work. There is no Mm -hmm. time for, and that's why I am very humble because I am not a type of person who really push my accomplishment in people's face. If you don't know what I accomplished, you won't know because I don't really say it. Because I realize that it doesn't matter how much you accomplish, you always have to keep going. People are expecting more. People are looking for more. And it's almost like people are looking up to you to win when you go on the track. And so for me... I have to become, the more I win, the more determined and the more I have to work hard to maintain that level of high performance and to make sure that I am not becoming over my head or think that I've made it or think that I've achieved everything. But it's about staying determined and, and keep working hard. Yeah. To, yeah. Was there a process for you with that where, like you say, okay, I, I had to, I, I won a gold medal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not many of us can say we've won an Olympic gold medal and yet you you talk about it like, okay, you know, next minute I'm on to the next thing or next week. Like what was the process for you to be like, okay, I accept that I've, I've achieved this goal or I've done this thing that's pretty damn hard to do. Did that just naturally happen for you over a course of days or did you sit down and journal? Did you have a little getaway? Like what was it for you to help you move through that? I think it's a natural, I think it was a natural thing for me because I have my goals. So at the beginning of each year, I, or each season rather, I set my goals and I keep moving towards them. And as soon as I accomplish a goal, I, I set another one. And so it's like I always have this, this list of things that I that I have that I want to achieve. And so I guess that keep me motivated, that keep me going. Okay. Are the lists like stuck up on your wall, like beautiful <laughs> mind style, or it's just a mental list? It's both. I have it mentally and I have it in my journal. And I still have a few things on my list that I haven't ticked off as yet. And I feel like the clock is ticking, but I'm still determined. Actually, I'm training for Tokyo 2021 Olympics. A lot of hey! people, yeah, a lot of people are surprised and like, why? Why are you doing it? I feel like 
it would be a great thing for my daughter to um, have some photos to look back on because she's too young to understand that her mom went to the Olympics after having her. That would be a good thing. Mm. And it also would be great to motivate a lot of people my age who feel like at a certain point you do not have it anymore because I do believe that speed don't go anywhere. Anyways, you always have speed. As long as you can recover, then you're good to go. And I, I feel great in training. I'm hitting some very good times. And my only challenge, which is the recovery to stay healthy, because over the last few years, there are some injury that just jump off without like where these come from. So it's about loving what I do. I think is a passion. I think it's just a passion for a track and field that, that keep me going. And I'm not really... It's just icing on the cake. I feel like I've achieved a lot, but I just feel like if I can achieve more, then that will motivate a lot of people and that would help uplift a lot of people. And so it's icing on the cake for me and it's fun and I enjoy it. Although the training can be challenging and that may be the hardest part about sport. You have to train so many months and a race is just a couple of seconds and you have to make sure that you do everything right. You do not have any time to waste and because you could throw away one year of training just in a couple of seconds if your focus is off a little or if you did not get enough rest the night before or if you're distracted. And so I just enjoy doing it. And I would really like to go to the Olympic one more time just to not only for me, but just to inspire and motivate a lot of people that no matter where you are in life, if there is something that you haven't checked off yet, you can still go for it and just do not limit yourself. Just give it your best shot. Have fun with it. And and that will help you to do well and accomplish whatever you accomplish. It will it will work it because you, you enjoy doing it and you have fun doing it. So cool. We're gonna we're gonna come back to that because I actually am doing some work with Olympic swimmers right now who are in the same boat, who have previously competed at the Olympics a while back and are like, no, you know what? We're doing it again. We're, let's <laughs> let's get in. And they're the training is so different, Eric, to what you and I are used to with mm-hmm. – oh, sorry, you've obviously worked with with all of the groups, but to what football player might be doing in terms of like the investment and reward cycle that it's an entirely different challenge from a, a mental standpoint. Before we go to that, though, I've seen the perfect hook-in for the, for the little phrase you used before, Eric. In terms of the evolution at – you know, as people get to the top and then – you've been drafted from college to the pros or you've made an Olympics and you've run and you've won, that people who become experts, and this applies especially, I learned this from one of your colleagues at FSU, Eric, the late, great Dr. Anders Ericsson, who mm. talked about deliberate practice, which was not just volume, not just doing things 10,000 hours. It's an it's a easy cliche throwaway Instagram quote, but the ability for people to actually learn what you mentioned before when you said, see a little, see a lot, see a lot, see nothing, is that evolving as a professional, as an expert, is not necessarily just doing more. It's about becoming clearer and more refined with what you look at. Can you talk us through how, how you've seen that in, in different parts of your coaching experience? Yeah, I'll tell you something interesting. Like I, I went... Where'd you hear Gersh, that, actually? Ger, well, <laughs> I think it was Nick Saban or... And I think he got it from a sports psychologist because he's really influenced by sports psychology. But Gershon Tenenbaum, Dr. Gershon Tenenbaum, under FSU giant in the field of sports psychology, he uh, really mentored me a lot. And he did this whole presentation once for this group of coaches, and he talked about chunking the field. And maybe this was the first time I heard it. And he showed like a football player returning a kick. 
and how like a novice decision maker will just kind of be looking all over the field, right? But an expert decision maker knows the exact cues to pay attention to. And then he backed that up with a video of Ronaldo. Have you seen the eye tracking one where he wears the eye tracking stuff and they show him and he's looking at like maybe eight or 10 things. And then the guy he's going against who's has no business going up against Ronaldo. It's just like, look at all the place. He's like totally messed up. And it's so true. It's like, as Dr. Peter Haberl says, attention is the currency of performance. And, you know, that to me is a differentiator is like being able to be aware of what has your attention and then being able to place your attention on that. I don't know if you know Peter very well, but he tells this story. I, I heard it once at the USOC. He was talking about Chris Hoy, the, the Olympic cyclist. Mm-hmm. And he was a six-time Olympic gold medalist, the most decorated cyclist of all time. And the first time he raced for an Olympic finals, he said it felt like he was going to the gallows. And wow. that's, an, that's an intense feeling. Like he's going to go. Was he the- racing against Veronica? There was a line. No. <laughs> Somebody like that. But he <laughs> felt like he was literally going to die. And what he did was, is he just said how he, he remembers like gripping the steering wheel and feeling his shoes and the clips on his bike. And so he anchored his mind on a tactile sensation and was able to divert his attention to what he needed to do. And so that to me is like, if you are an an elite athlete or if you have to get up and speak in front of a group, like elite athletes actually feel pressure. And I think Veronica and I have talked about this before. If, If she doesn't feel a certain amount of pressure, something's off. It's what you choose to do with that feeling how you choose to shift your attention. So like for personally, for me, like if I have to do a pitch, like right now I'm raising money for my company or doing something like that. And it's kind of nerve wracking, you know, and I'll think about my first lines or I'll focus on like a specific cue and just harness in on that. And then before I know it, I'm in the flow of this situation. Mm. But yeah, that's the difference between being a novice and being an expert is you can harness your attention, place it where you want it, when you want it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that saying, I didn't realize I was paraphrasing someone else, but I use it a lot hmm. when I say that, that attention is the currency of performance. Yeah. Because I particularly like the play on words of like, what do you pay attention to? If you think about it as a currency, hmm. like when I am paying attention to this, I'm literally investing one of the few scarce resources I have. Hmm. And once it's gone, it's gone. Is that going to pay me back or not? And, you know, if I pay attention to the crowd as I'm receiving that kickoff, is that going to pay me back or not? Or if mm-hmm. I'm paying attention to the B gap, that's probably going to be more likely to give me something back. And it's definitely look at you, man, useful. throwing out the football terminology, hey, the B gap. I love I'm, it, man. You are deep I've been around. That's right. <laughs> I've been here long enough to pick up some things. But that's a concrete example of, and you gave a great example, and, and probably a more generalizable example of I'm about to do something that's stressing me, whether it is field a kickoff, run an Olympic 200 present at a pitch for some venture capital, go for an audition, whatever it might be, this thing is stressing me out in the moment. And so I'm going to anchor my attention to something, particularly it's helpful if it's sensory and it's not about your gut, like feel my left foot, notice the breeze or whatever it is, like yeah. twist my foot on the start, on the starting gate, whatever it might be is, is the ability to anchor your attention on something that may be actually neutral, allows you to then get in that flow and move your mind back to, okay, what's next and be task relevant rather than emotion tuned because that's not helpful in those big Mm. moments. Veronica, would would it be fair to say that you had a few of those 
little tricks yourself in terms of being in the starting blocks? Like wh- where would your mind go? What would you pay attention to that helps pay you back in gold? <laughs> in gold. So I use visualization a lot. So when I get to the starting block, I actually clear my mind because I um, visualize my um, race so many times and I just clear my mind. And the only thing that I focus on in the start is just the sound of the gun. And then after reaction, everything just fall into place. Really cool. Really cool. And that's, I mean, it's so simple, right? Just listen for the gun. There's literally thousands. If you think about all the channels we can take into information from our eyes, our ears, our body, our thoughts, there's so many things you can tune into, but to be able to shrink it to one thing and be committed and specific to that is a common trick that a lot of elite performers will talk about. I'm going to circle back now to that four-year cycle and that crazy journey you've re-embarked on of like, hey, let's do this crazy four-year training thing for the hope of one shot, which is a really unusual and very different dynamic than most of us, whether it's a week-to-week sport like football, even a day-to-day sport like baseball, or if you're a surgeon and you have to cut five times every day, like there is a very clear or at least a clearer return on investment of I'm doing this training or I've done this work and I'm getting doing this prep for this moment and I get to find out every week whether I'm doing it right or not. Now, you get to time things, but I'm really curious to dig into for someone who is chasing something that is a while off. Now, yours is a, hopefully a year away or less at the moment, but to do a four-year training cycle, which you've done many times as an Olympian, the equivalent of chasing a college degree, the, the equivalent of trying to get drafted if you're in college, the equivalent of trying to get the right placement that you want for med school, all of these things that people try and achieve that are long-term dreams. How did you prioritize what you paid attention to on a long-term scale? Not so much an in-the-moment thing, but what was important to you? What is important to you as you prepare for the Olympics when there's so much that could drag you away from that goal? The objective is to... Take it daily. It's a daily. So there's a long-term goal, but then you have all these small goals that you have to achieve leading up to it. And so the focus is on making sure that I'm training right, that I'm eating right, that I'm sleeping, and that I'm achieving my goals, my daily goals or my monthly goals when I'm competing and I'm hitting the times. And so, so it's about doing all the little things daily, weekly, monthly, all the way to the Olympics, because within that four-year period, you have world championship, world into a championship, you have the circuit, the European circuit to compete on the US circuit, and you have all these other tasks that you have to take care of, but all of these are preparing you and building you up for that big moment, which only could be four years, and so it is absolutely important to make sure that you're doing every little thing to make sure that when that comes, you, you are ready. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... I actually felt like I was dying at the end of the photometer. I could not breathe. It seems like I ran that race so hard. It was unbelievable. So damn proud. The daily discipline is a challenge for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm going to talk for myself here. At one stage during COVID lockdown, my waistline had expanded 
just a little bit due to a shift in eating and exercise habits. Mm-hmm. And that daily discipline is hard to come by without, but obviously, obviously I'm not trying to get to the Olympics, but what's an easy tip that you've heard from someone else that you've then incorporated into your routine that like helps you stay on that daily as opposed when there's so many different things in life that can take you away from a goal that's so far away. Like I, I'm basically trading off with future me when I'm like, yeah, yeah but that donut looks really good. Mm-hmm. What tips have you incorporated for yourself? It's about prioritizing. For example, when it, when it comes to eating, if you can eat 80% healthy all the time, then you can give yourself room for, say, eating ice cream cone or eat a donut 20% of the time. So it's about discipline. So you're very disciplined and say, okay, Saturdays or, or Friday is going to be my cheat day. And if you are able to eat healthy all those days prior, then you're okay to kind of enjoy that cheat day. And so if you can create that balance and be determined and know that, okay, I'm going to be disciplined for this time, but then I'm going to enjoy myself this time. And by doing it like that, then I think it may be easier, but if we will not create that discipline and create boundaries and prioritize things, it's harder for you to stay on track. Yeah. And specifically you, you talked about a plan, even if it's not 80-20 or if it's whatever, having a, like, here's what I'm going to do in yeah. advance is so much better than waking up on a Thursday in COVID quarantine and being like, maybe today's a donut day. I don't know. I'm feeling kind of, I'm feeling kind of you know, strawberry sprinkles today. Uh, let me grab that and flip it into, so one of the games that we play with all the guests, and you're welcome to abstain from the game if you like, is choke and change. The, the Like, Using that example that we just said there, does either of you feel comfortable sharing a time along the journey where you're like, I actually kind of gave in, like I didn't do what, I, what we've just spoken about there, or I didn't stay fixed on a goal, or I didn't handle a clutch moment well, and here's what I learned and here's what I do now as a result of that. Yeah, I think I have a story. <laughs> Go for it. I'm excited. Yeah. I love, so- I love stories. Yeah, so at the 2011 World Championship, I got distracted a little bit. My semifinals did not go so well. And I think I'm a little bit too hard on myself. And I think I used energy trying to complain about didn't maximize my start and I didn't do something as opposed to realize that, okay, I didn't do the final. So now I have an hour and a half just to focus, just refocus and go for the final. And I think I spent a little too much time beating myself over the semifinals. And I got to the start and even there, I really believe I lost the 100 meter. I came second just because I spent too much time wasting on the pass. And that was the first and the last time I learned a lesson. Always good at putting things behind me and move on. And I get a little bit about maybe the person who I lost to or whatever the case was when I knew that I messed up. And so I learned my lesson in the 200 though. I came second in the 100 meters and I, and I won the 200. Meters. So, <laughs> it's, so it um, ended, it ended well. Yes, it ended well. Good, good. Eric, you got an example there from a non-track sprinter? Yeah. I mean, my job's been a little bit different. It's been about analyzing situations and being thoughtful about your recommendations. That's really like, where where my performance is. And when I first started using GPS tracking back in 2010, I literally went to Australia where you're at right now, went and visited GWS. And uh, I was doing this information exchange with them. And 
I brought this GPS tracking stuff back to the FSU and nobody had ever used it before. And I had nobody to tell me how to use this stuff. Right. So I tracked a practice and I brought the report to the head coach and it was just a sheet of data. And uh, I was like, Hey coach, you know, here's the report. And he was like, so was practice hard. And I was like, <laughs> uh, I think so. And he like literally like cussed me out and like, I went back to my office and I'm just sitting there like, okay, what did I do wrong? And that's when I like realized, like I had just given him a bunch of stuff, data he couldn't use. I didn't think through the problem. I didn't think all the way through. And so for me, that was like a pivotal moment, like data without insight is useless. And so like since then, and I've worked with a lot of different coaches, I'm always thinking to myself, like, what is their response going to be? Like, what is the hurdle that they're going to have to get over with? And so I, you know, I, don't, I didn't have like a moment of choking. It was more like, I didn't think through this situation. And that's really where I, people in my industry have made their, that's where you make your money, right? Or that's where you make the impact on the team is analyzing a very complex environment and delivering something in such a way that you can get a person in leadership to make a decision one way or the other. And so, you know, I've worked with a lot of people and they're like, oh, I want to do this. I'm like, don't do that. Like, just don't <laughs> go there. I've made that mistake. You've got to think through like what their thought process is and everything like that. So that didn't, that hasn't happened again. <laughs> no, good. <laughs> I know that I've got a fellow coach who does my job at the New York Yankees who uses the saying, if you want to not think in the moment, you need to think a lot in advance. Mm. And that's a, a saying that I like to throw out there and I never claim it to be mine. But thank you, Lauren, for that little uh, saying. But mm. it's a very useful and it applies right there. Like your ability mm. to go in and, and do the job right and do it efficiently and quickly and not get in your own way, mm. you actually have to do the pre-work. It'd be like mm. me turning up to try and run a 200 metres anywhere, let alone at the Olympics. Like if I haven't trained for it, Something's going to go ping, right? Yeah. Your hamstring probably, hamstring. but something else. Yeah. This has been a great wandering, but great chat. Really enjoyed it. And I wanted to just shift gears a little bit now as we start to wrap it up to one of the exercises that I learned from John Gordon, who is a, one of my favorite authors, a great public speaker. And he actually taught an exercise to Debo Swinney at Clemson's where I first mm. read about it which he ran with his whole team and it, and it really helped open up. I probably should do this at the start of the show if it helps people open up, but it talks about you, you get the choice of three H's that you can share with the audience. And in these, in these cases, it's a football locker room. I've also run this with other organizations that aren't sports teams. It's very cool. Each of you can talk for one minute or longer if you want about either a hero, a hardship, a highlight, or a hope. Now, mm -hmm. we've probably covered some hardship there. I know, Eric, you mentioned a mentor. So there are, you know, we've already kind of touched on some of this, but if this is really the last question leading into, I'm actually curious to dig in a little more, Eric, about the data and how that's shifted for you in terms of being like part of my job to now like that is what you do. You're driving an entire business that helps people derive those insights. If you want to go there, feel free to take it. But picking one of those four H's, go for it. You've got the clock is yours. Yeah. So I'll start, I'll say hope, you know, cause that's, that's a season that I'm in right now. Yeah. So in sports tech, I noticed that there was a lot of, like I said, data, no insight. And it was like, it was always on us to figure out a way to derive this information. And so I started looking at the consumer tech market, you know, like Apple watches and Fitbits and 
you know, is the same problem exists? Is there a lot of data with no insight? And I found, I uh, read an article in Forbes that said the consumer's number one complaint was that wearable tech was useless. Now, this is like a $35 billion market. And so a lot of what people are doing is stringing together the cocktail of apps and tech to try to solve their own problems. And so me and a, I called up a friend of mine and was like, hey, you know, I want to test an idea I have. And so I, I started surveying people like, what do you want out of your wearable tech? And they're like, we want more energy, which makes total sense. People want to feel better, right? And so we actually ran a pilot with the Apple Watch to see if we could predict health outcomes with data. And we actually not only were able to predict people's energy, but we were actually able to predict their energy and mood two days in advance and then figure out where are the inflections points where we could insert a recommendation to keep them performing at their best. And so that's where AIM7, my company, was born. And I'm hoping, you know, if we want to go to the H, is that I'm hoping that we get to impact millions of lives with this and deliver upon a massive gap in the market. There are billion-dollar companies that have lost huge amounts of money because they're never able to solve this problem. And thank God I was uniquely positioned 10 years ago to be in a place where I had to solve this problem in sports now I'm going to solve it for consumers. We're going to deliver customized health and well-being solutions, taking data from their wearable devices. Super interesting. And a living, breathing, tangible example of see a little, see a lot, right? Yes. Where it's like you can have all the data in the world or you can have all the insight in the world. Mm-hmm. You can have all the experience in the world. It don't mean shit if you don't no. know what to do with it. That is exactly what, and what it means. Dude, you just need to promo for our company. <laughs> I'll give you the cut and I'll take a 5% cut on the back end. <laughs> You're going to have the video. Feel free to use it. Thank you. <laughs> Veronica, have you got one of those four H's you want to share? So as a young girl, I dreamt of becoming an individual Olympic gold medalist. And so my first taste at the Olympic was as a high schooler. I was 18 years old. And My Olympic dream came true in 2004, and that was my senior year in college. But I wouldn't say that my first Olympic gold medal was the highlight of my career. I think it was in 2008 when I defended my title and become the second woman in history to win Olympic back-to-back 200 meters. And actually, I didn't even know that leading up to, because I don't really keep up with stats and stuff like that. I was focused on what I want to get done. But... That race was the highlight for many reasons. In 2008, I did not make the 100-meter team in Jamaica. So I was defeated in the 100-meter at the trials. I expected to make the team. I didn't. And so the next day, I had to come back for the 200 meters. And the, the girls that beat me in the 100 meters were my competitors in the 200. And so I had to lay it out all on the line. I had no choice because now I was the defending champion and I, was, I had to get a spot. I won the trials and I went on to Beijing and I won the 200 meter. So that was my protest moment because I asked for one individual Olympic gold medal and I got two in 2008. I failed in the 100 meter and I was the first time in my career I was sitting and watching the 100 meter and was not running it at any championship. From, a, from junior days, I was always running the 100 meter and 200 meter. So this was the first time I felt like I was somewhat rested going into the 200 meter. Uh, nice. Yeah. And the time I ran in the 200 meters is still my PR, 21.74. And at the end of that race, I, I, Eric mentioned, or maybe it was you mentioned someone who said they feel like they were dying 
I actually felt like I was dying at the end of that quadrimeter. I could not breathe. It seems like I ran that race so hard. It was unbelievable. I was overwhelmed with joy to defend my title, but I was like, stress was like, I was leaning down. I could not breathe. Alice was coming to congratulate me and I could hardly stand up to greet her or to just touch her like this. I was like, my feel like I was dying. So that was the highlight. So that's why I said that there's always, I always find good in, in, in things that is not so bad because I was disappointed with 100 meters, but I ended up was more energetic for the 200 meter having only one event and were able to defend my title and that I ran cemented me in history. So my 2008 Olympic victory, I would say was a, is the highlight of my career. Very cool. I didn't, I didn't tell you too, the, this little asterisk on the four H's game is that anyone in the audience can ask you a question after you've told the story. And I have a question about that. <laughs> you talked about losing the 100 and then having to back up to the two, to qualify the 200 the next day. There are benefits down the track for you. You're more rested when it comes to the Olympic stage, but that must have felt some way, right? You lose that 100. You, you said you were fully expecting to make the team in the 100. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you transfer that energy, that feeling of, that's not a good feeling probably, to, okay, I have to race in less than 24. How do you transform that? How do you channel it? What did you do to move that emotion to a place where you then went and dominated that 200? Right. So I had my quick moment. So I cried for a little bit. I complained to my coach and my agent a little bit. And then I quickly had to just shake it off and just refocus. I knew that my training were good. I knew that I was the best curve runner in the field. And I knew that all I had to do was to focus on me and my execution. And then that would be good enough for me to win because I prepared well for the 100 meter. I just missed the mark. I think I missed the mark in my starts and the other girls, they came well prepared and they just had a perfect race and mine wasn't in the 100 meter, but I knew that that was just the 100 meter, not because the 100 meter wasn't the way I wanted it. That doesn't mean that I... I'm not ready. I'm not prepared to run a good 200 meters. And so I quickly put the 100 meters behind me and embraced the fact that I did not make the team in the individual 100 meters. And I was just going to the Olympics to run the four by one at that point. And I really wanted an individual event and I had no choice. The 200 meter was the only thing that I had left and I had to go there and just go for it. Yeah, really cool. A good example, again, of that quick acceptance of, all right, I've got to take this. I've got to flush it. I've got to move on and get ready for the next one. We'll, we'll finish with this final question, which is, as I've mentioned throughout the show, there's many people listening who are not Olympic gold medalists, track beasts. There are many people listening who are not coaches to Olympic gold medalists. They are regular folk who may be trying to pursue a college degree, maybe trying an audition, music, entertainment could be trying to build a business, could be trying to make rank in the army, in the military, could be just trying to be a good parent or a partner. What have you learned in each of your journeys that you think is actually, you say that skill or that knowledge is transferable to not what I do? Like I can take that home with me. I can take that into a boardroom. Like what is the skill that you've learned throughout your specialist training to becoming one of the best in the world that you say, you know what, I actually can apply that elsewhere outside of that arena? Go for it, V. (laughs) I think for me, it is just mental toughness and being determined because as an athlete, by having an organized way of doing things, I know that I have to get up every day and I have to train and I have to do certain things a certain way. It has taught me to be 
consistent and to be determined and just to stay focused and believe in myself and just, I guess, mental resilience is the word I'm looking for. Track and field, my career has taught me to be mentally resilient. Just keep pushing through regardless of what I'm facing in life. Cool. Good example. Eric, you got one? Yeah, I would say seeing a problem for what it is. That is kind of what my career has been built on is problem solving. And, you know, there's, there's something in, in the world that I've worked in called, you know, you can look at things as a reductionist or a complex system, meaning like this is this, and this is this, and this is this, but everything is interrelated. Like, even if you're trying to get that job in the boardroom, there's so many factors at play that you may not even know about. Maybe there's somebody behind the scenes that's greasing the wheel and you go in so prepared and you felt like you knocked it out of the park and it just didn't work out. There are things, there's all sorts of complex interacting systems and, and getting somebody like a Veronica or somebody else to perform at their best is very complex because it's not just physical, there's mental, there, I mean, there's physical, there's mental, there's the diet, there's the sleep, there's, you know, we've had instances where things didn't work out well and it was because of something else. And so this idea of being able to zoom back and really just like separate myself from the problem and go, okay, take a really big picture, look at this thing, don't get emotional about it. That is like the skill I think that everybody should adopt because like right now I'm going from coach to entrepreneur and I have to like really zoom back and be like, I don't know the answer to this. I got to test it. I got to go find somebody that's got the answer. I got to go get them on my team, you know? And so I think that's a skill set that anybody can adopt. Very cool. Little additional thing that I don't reckon I learned until I really got deep in the weeds with some of this work is that toughness is not all about gritting the teeth. There is absolutely a big chunk of it that's resilience, but there's also flexibility and the ability to, mm. to look at things a different way or to hold your feelings in check while you search for the truth. That was a little too philosophical. I don't, I'm not normally that philosophical, Veronica. <laughs> I'll put a disclaimer out there then, but that sounded like some Plato shit. Um, <laughs> on that note, we'll wrap it up. I want to say a big thanks to both of you for joining us here on the show. Really appreciate your stuff. If people are looking to track you down on the uh, World Wide Web because they want to follow up with something you said or they want to hear more about AIM7 or Veronica, I know you have a clothing line that's doing big things. If anyone wants to find each of you, where would they, where would they go? So I can be found at um, vcbfit.com or veronicacamberbrown.com or Instagram. You can DM me. And yeah, so any of those websites, you can just shoot an email and I'll definitely cool. get it or DM me. I'll check my DMs and if it makes sense, then I definitely <laughs> reply. <laughs> All right, great stuff. We'll, put, we'll add some links to the bottom of the show on the show notes on the page. Eric, how about yourself? Yeah. So Instagram is at Eric Corum and we put out a lot of content on how people can achieve high performance in their own lives. It's something I'm very passionate about. I also have a podcast called The Blueprint, which is about high performance. And then ericcorum.com. AIM7, if they want to sign up for like my high performance newsletter, they can go there. But yeah, AIM7 is coming soon. If you're interested and you want to be a client or a customer, one of our first, we launched our MVP, our minimal viable product on January 4th. So shoot me a DM and love to chat with you about it. Awesome. I look forward to that. 2021 is going to be big for both of you. No uh, question. Wish you, wish you both all the best. Good luck with the Olympic dream. Third time. Well, how, how many times is it now? This will be number what? Number six if I, yeah. Wow. Number six. Five, so. Wow. That's... <laughs> 
That is insane. Disgusting. It <laughs> is. Make me feel like I'm looking at that donut over there right now. I'm going to go throw it out. <laughs> Thank you, Veronica. Good luck with it. And I'll talk to you down the track. Hopefully hear more things in 21. Thank you. Yeah. It was a pleasure. So what is it got to be so damn Excellent, bustin' with the best of them Simply impressive, no worry and stressing I'm, I'm getting mine right now Put your shades on and let me show you how Yeah, right